Hi, welcome to the Behind the Balance Sheet podcast, where we meet leading investors and commentators and educate ourselves about the world of investing and the world. Our mission is to remove some of the mystique around investing and improve our understanding of what makes a successful investment or indeed an unsuccessful one. Our goal is to inform, educate and entertain. We hope you enjoy this and every episode. Behind the balance sheet and affiliates and podcast guests may own shares or have an economic interest in securities discussed in this podcast, which is aired for your education and entertainment only. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as investment advice or relied upon for investment decisions. Always do your own research. This podcast is intended to educate as well as entertain, and it has a more serious purpose. We are big supporters of the Financial Times Financial Literacy and Inclusion Campaign, a new charity which you can check out on ft.com forward slash FLIC. It's the most disadvantaged in society who often get taken in by financial scams, by payday loans, and similar artful devices to part people with their money. We can change this. It's a straightforward task of education. This really is a great cause, and I urge you, please, to support it. The podcast is sponsored by Sentio, and I ask them because I use the research platform almost every day. For equity analysts, it's in many respects the ideal tool. If I didn't have a professional platform, I would need several different software systems. Sentio saves me a lot of time and ensures my research can be done in one place. I like it because first, the data is reliable and it aggregates all content. Second, it's easy to use and much more intuitive than some other platforms. Third, it has features I have never seen in other systems. My favorite is the ability to go into 10K and extract the history for a particular data table. If I want to see the trend in a parameter, and I often do this, I snap my fingers without having to dig through multiple 10Ks. It's much faster and easier. But most important is the price. There's a huge price advantage over other systems. If you're a smaller fund or even a larger fund equipping analysts, Sentio is definitely worth looking at. Visit sentio.com forward slash BTBS for behind the balance sheet for more details. Richard Oldfield is a true English gentleman with a self-deprecating manner, a sharp wit, and a deep understanding of investment. He held senior positions in Mercury Asset Management, then one of the top investment firms in the UK, before running Alta Advisors for one of Europe's richest families and then setting up the eponymous Oldfield Partners, a four billion pound value investing firm. In this interview, we discuss Richard's brilliant yet underappreciated book, Simple But Not Easy. It's chock full of anecdotes from his long experience as a value investor. Richard has an innate belief in the cyclical nature of markets and in the madness of crowds. He's a classic contrarian investor and he came out with so many gems about how to think in this way. The wonderful thing about Richard's approach is that he is truly an independent thinker. He doesn't believe in index funds. He likens them to hanging on to the coattails of a lunatic. He believes, as do I, that anyone with some common sense, a bit of experience, and an ability to manage their emotions can outperform the market. Enjoy his advice. And if you enjoy the episode and would like to buy his book, our friends at Harriman House have a special offer. Go to their website and buy the book with the code 
SBNE50. Simple but not easy for 50% off. And this is the first episode of this podcast in which I've actually recited some poetry and in which our guest sings, Richard, best stick to the day job, mate. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy this episode. So Richard, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you. Did you always want to be an investor? Uh, well, Steve, it was great to be here. Thank you very much for asking me. The answer is sort of more or less yes. Um, if by always you mean back to the age of um, sort of 14, 15, when um, very sort of very uncool, I uh, used to look at the share prices in the Daily Telegraph. And I got interested in share prices and markets at a very early age. And I first invested in a company called um, Britannia Arrow, I think at the age of 17, 18, 100 quid, something like that, probably less than 100 quid. Um, it, was the, it was the rump of uh, Slater Walker. Slater Walker had gone bust in the secondary banking crisis in 73 or so, so I was 18. And uh, Britannia Arrow was, uh, had been Slater Walker Insurance, and it was perfectly respectable and viable. Uh, but because it had been associated with Slater Walker, its share price was almost zero. I think it was 6p, in fact. <laughs> and, uh, That'd be that, six old p. Six, uh, uh, no, I think we'd had decimal. Oh, right, okay. We, I think we were, I think yeah, we were, we six, would have been, yeah. new, they were called six new P for a yeah. while. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and I, and I didn't, of course, know what I was doing at all, but I think I was always drawn, even from that age, to uh, low share prices, which also meant probably low valuations, not that I knew about valuations. Um, and I did kind of reason that I could lose six P, but I might make 18 P. And the and the risk reward was was favourable, and also I knew this was a respectable company which had simply been tainted by its association with Slater Walker. So the answer is yes. From quite an early age, I was I was very much into investment. And was this something that your parents encouraged, or my father was a stockbroker, but he didn't encourage it at all. I wouldn't say he actively discouraged, but he wasn't really interested in uh, in whether I went into the city or not. He didn't care about that, and nobody, nobody else particularly encouraged me. So it was just in the blood. Oh, interesting. And Britannia, was it successful? It was successful. Yeah. Now, that's, that can be good or bad, because if you lose money when you start, then you get taught a lesson. Absolutely. So yeah. how if long I, did it I'd take lost you? money, I might, I might have been a doctor or a train driver. <laughs> well, I'm glad, you did. I'm glad you didn't. So it took a little while before you started losing some money. So listen, you wrote this book, Simple but I think, not easy. I think, the, I think the world is very fortunate I wasn't a train driver or a, <laughs> or a doctor. <laughs> well, we're fortunate that you were an investor. But the, this book, um, Simple But Not Easy, you wrote in 2007. And it's kind of a common sense approach to investing for those looking to maximize their long-term returns. What made you want to write a book? Well, I'd always liked writing. And I had accumulated all sorts of prejudices about about investment over the years, and it was a it was a chance to let off steam and and give vent to all the thoughts that I'd had about investing. And I also felt that the investment books that I've read, with the exception of a few, are not a very good read. And I've felt that investment ought to be, as the title is, it ought to be simple. Uh, the rudiments of investment are simple. The rudiments of investing in shares are quite straightforward. Of course, there are very complex instruments, and, and that can't be said of those. But of, sh of investment in companies, the rudiments are straightforward, and they're dressed up to be extremely complicated in the way that is true of all professionals, because professionals import a whole lot of jargon, partly as a kind of 
you know, how clever are we sort of thing, mm. and partly to put off um, incomers. And I felt that investment was for everyone, really, that everybody can take an interest in investment, and particularly because, and then the second part of the sentence, the, the title is not easy, particularly because of this extraordinary facet about investment, which is not true of almost any other profession I can think of, which is that more than half the investment managers in the world will turn out not to have done a good job, will have underperformed the market over the long term, because the market, if it's a, if it's a, a sophisticated market, is effectively made up of professional investors. And so by, by definition, the average uh, manager must be roughly in line with the index, um, but a bit worse than that because of fees and transaction costs. And that is so different from any other profession. Accountants, you expect to add up all the figures. Uh, postmen, you expect to deliver the letter to the right place 99.9% .9 of the time. Um, it was actually when I said, made this remark to somebody who was a lawyer, he, he pointed out that lawyers lose half their cases, but they, 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 I don't know whether they do or not. Um, uh, I guess they must do. I, mean, I, guess, I guess they, yeah, they, I guess they must, must, they must lose, do. Yeah. They must do. Uh, anyway, it, so it's an unusual profession. And, and so it is both simple in the rudiments of it, but it is also much more difficult than the layperson thinks it is to outperform uh, because of the nature of the market. And I think the layperson, with common sense and so on, um, has a perfectly decent chance of doing it him or herself. And that was why I wrote the book. And you were quite sceptical about index funds, weren't I'm you? I'm very sceptical about index funds. And you still are sceptical. So tell yes. us the examples that you used in the book, because it's quite fascinating. The original book in 2007, yeah. you talked about the well, index changes. Well, uh, um, at the peak of the tech boom in 2000, in March 2000, um, the index committee of the, of the FTSE 100 chucked out of the index a whole lot of old-fashioned companies. I remember Whitbread was one of them. I forget what the others were, but those sorts of companies. And they put into the index a whole lot of um, newfangled companies that uh, had probably not existed five years before. And certainly I had hardly heard of some of them. So I think five companies in, five companies out. That was the peak of the tech boom. They put, they made that change because index committees on the whole work on market capitalization. Yes. So if your share price goes up, you stand more of a chance of getting into the index. If your share price goes down, you get chucked out of the index, which is in a way the opposite of what common sense should lead one to do. Uh, and sure enough, in March 2000, the tech bubble burst. Six months later, uh, the index committee had to reverse their move because in that interim time, the price of Whitbread had gone up by 25 or 30%. I think the average price increase of those five or six companies was 25%, the six companies which had been ejected. Mm. And the half dozen which had been included in the index had gone down by an average of, I think, more than 25%. Yeah, almost certainly. <laughs> and, so, and so they had to reverse it because the market capitalization rationale meant that they had to include the companies which they'd ejected only six months earlier and chuck out the companies. So if you, were, if you were following the index fund, if you were invested in index fund, that's what you did. And so my view of index funds is that you are really treading on the coattails of a lunatic. <laughs> uh, if you if you if you pursue an index fund strategy, indexes were never invented for the purpose of investment. They were invented for the purpose of measurement. They were a yardstick for uh, performance measurement and and have a very valid role as that. But they were not invented for people to invest in. I think uh, if you invest in an index fund, uh, you have to realise that you are 
following the coattails of a lun- hanging on to the coattails of a lunacy. Now it may be, and this is the sort of back to the point I was making a moment ago. There's this sort of chilling fact that by hanging on to the coattails of a lunatic, you may nonetheless do better than the average manager. And so there is a sort of, uh, there's a sanity in lunacy. Um, (laughs) But I do think that it is possible for a group of people or a person or a family, if they apply common sense, to choose managers, the majority of whom uh, will outperform uh, the majority of the time. I wouldn't put it any stronger than that. I've been on lots of investment committees, and um, any investment committee which thought that it could always choose managers who would consistently outperform should go into index funds because they're likely to make terrible mistakes. If they take that view, then when a manager is underperformed for a few years, they will want to get rid of the manager. It may be completely the wrong time to do so. And that was absolutely the case in, in 2000, when the managers you wanted then were ones who just performed very badly for several years. Um, I was one of them. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, of course, the same thing is exactly true today. I think the same thing is true today. And, of course, we've had, um, we've had several moments at which one could have said that. And I did think in February 2016, which was, which was a very good, did turn out to be a very good year, but it didn't last into 2018, 2019, 2020. I did think in February 2016, we got a turning point in this style question yes. of, of value versus growth. Didn't, it didn't turn out to be the case. Now, it's, it's, it's lined up pretty, pretty strongly now because one of the things that value, one of the things which hurts growth companies, companies which have high growth rates with earnings and cash flow not terrifically strong in the immediate term, but looking out a number of years projected to be very strong, one of the things which hurts those companies is if the discount rate which you apply to future earnings and future cash flow rises. And it looks... Of course, we don't, we never know, but it looks as if, uh, as from towards the end of last year, we've got a significant turn in interest rates, which may last for a long period. Um, once interest rates start to increase, they usually go on increasing for some years. And we have this extraordinary position in the world in which interest rates are so far below the rate of inflation that it's difficult to see the central bank stopping increasing interest rates in the near future. Well, we'll see, won't we? Because, uh, I mean, there's quite a strong body of opinion in the US that the Fed will run at the first sight of recession. And, you know, they'll, because what choice do they, do they have? Do they in, induce a recession to conquer inflation? It's a real dilemma. Yeah, and it's, it's a real, real dilemma. I mean, and, you know, I, I mean, I, I wouldn't say I've got any sympathy with the Fed, but uh, <laughs> the, the problem they've got is they've got so much debt yeah. and we all i mean yeah. everywhere so yeah. Yeah. you kind of think the strategy has to be financial repression inflate the debt away and hope that you don't do too much damage to the economy in the meantime it's, yeah no I, I agree with that i think they've they've somehow got themselves into just a hopeless muddle where you have got this you've never had 10 15 years in which they couldn't make inflation budge and it was fine, therefore, to have interest rates at close to zero because inflation was close to zero. Now inflation is very, very far from zero. And still they have interest rates which are not far from zero. And that's an absurd position. Um, so I think they are likely to go on increasing rates. But they are, in, as, you, as you say, they're in a, in a terrible mess. 
And I think it's really interesting that the, the Bank for International Settlements, which is usually, A, pretty hawkish on inflation, and B, perhaps the most sort of sensible, uh, the most even-headed of all the central banks and has a very good record. Well, they said the other day something like uh, it's necessary to carry on increasing interest rates to do something about inflation. Uh, on the other hand, uh, banks will be wary of increasing interest rates, which cause recession. So even the BIS is in a muddle. It can't really figure out what path to take. Well, of course, the, the issue is that you can put up rates all you all you like. You're not going to get more oil out of the ground. And you know, I no, mean, that, that's, no. the, that's the basic problem. So the, it's actually, I think, very different in the 70s. I mean, did you spend a lot of time worrying about macro when you were when you were running money? I mean, or was it one of the? Uh, you, I think you can't you can't ignore macro. And we, we I mean, I and and the team that uh, I worked with at um, at Oldfield Partners were very much not macro. We're very much concentrating on companies and trying to choose companies whose businesses are essentially sound um, at low valuations, uh, and that doesn't exclude cyclical companies. But the cyclical companies have to have balance sheets which are strong enough to last through hard times because we're, we're not good at forecasting when those hard times will be. And, and I, I think very few people are good at forecasting. I mean, I love the, the whole sort of row of um, wildly, wildly wrong forecasts that um, there have been through history. H.M. Warner, for example, saying that he didn't think that um, talkies would ever catch on. Why should people want to see actors talking? Uh, the whole, no, there are lots of forecasts which oh, have turned out to be crackers. Yeah, it's not just economists that are bad at forecasting. I, I agree. Now, in the book, which I really enjoyed because it was it was just a very simple book to read and and full of, I mean, just chock full of wisdom. You use this analogy of being unable to find first class carriage on a train and turning round too early. And you use that as an allegory for a mistaken in investing. Can you can you tell us about that? Sure. Yeah. Well, the so often in investment, you are patient, 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 and, and, it, and it's not coming right. You wait and you wait and you wait. And finally, you think, the market must be right. I've got this wrong. I give up. And of course, that, I mean, that's happened to me many times, but I try hard to resist the temptation to, to run. Um, and I try hard to be patient. But one of my sort of mentors in the investment world is a man called Peter Kundle. And his mantra was patience, patience, patience. And I always, I like that, that repetition because patience has more than one meaning. It is not only, it's, it's suffering in, in the <laughs> Bible um, as well as waiting. Uh, there's also a hospital patient, which is sort of sometimes, sometimes relevant. Uh, so... Uh, patience, patience, patience. And the, the, the analogy I made uh, was of true story, which did make me think of investment. I was quite early in my career at Warburg's. So I had to go to Cambridge to talk to some undergraduates about investment. And I, we were bought first class tickets by Warburg's. And I walked right to the end of the, of the train at Liverpool Street, right to the, almost, almost to the front. And then I gave up because I couldn't find a first-class carriage. I thought I must have passed it, and I walked back. But of course, in fact, the first-class carriage was right at the front behind the driver's cab. And that happens just so often in investment that you give up at the moment of maximum um, fear. And it's not a coincidence that it's a moment of maximum fear because the moment when the share price is weakest is when nearly everybody has given up on it. Uh, and that moment is, turns out to be the turning point. 
So how, how do you manage for that? I, I think you have to be emotionally kind of um, geared to manage it. And, and, there, and, there, and I think that value investors are born, not made. People who have an inclination to invest in companies with low valuations, who are drawn to companies whose share prices have gone down, I take the view that a share price which has fallen is more interesting, makes the share more interesting than it was before it was fallen. That sort of attitude has to be uh, innate. I think you can you can read and learn, and it's very, it's very important to read and learn, but it's, it's, it's interesting how many investors, value investors, have said that they read uh, The Intelligent Investor by Ben Graham and the light bulb came on. They had a kind of flash of, in, of inspiration. They had an epiphany and they realized this is what they've been waiting for all their life, so to speak, <laughs> um, uh, because it was always in them uh, and they needed Ben Graham or Warren Buffett later to, to express what they, were, what, what they knew they were trying to do, but they hadn't been able to articulate themselves. So I think that, that, I think that attitude is innate. And therefore, it's very difficult. I think recruiting somebody who's not used to thinking in that way and thinking that you can turn them to think in a value way is a mistake. You, you, you need on the whole to have people who are similarly value investors um, because otherwise it's, it's when things go wrong that you get the tests always. Yes. And when things go wrong, those who don't really have that kind of attitude in their blood uh, will, be, will be panicking they'll be turning back just before they reach the first class carriage. <laughs> I like the comment you made in the book that you prefer to invest in a stock where the investors are unhappy. And I thought that was a very good encounter. Yeah, no, that is, that's very important because um, if everybody is happy, then it's reflected in the stock price. The valuation is high. I saw this in, in, in a private equity context. I saw something about a private equity group the other day. And I, it's probably fairly typical. In their most recent funds, the growth rate of the companies that they hold was around 20%. Growth rate in revenues? In revenues, yeah. Wow. In companies which they owned in their earlier funds and still own today, the growth rate is sub 5%. Uh, and that I think that's an illustration. You could interpret it in various ways. But I think it's an illustration of the fact that people tend to be over-optimistic. They tend to be influenced by the immediate past. They're influenced by the fact that Rentacure, for example, which was a great growth glory stock in what I suppose 20 years ago now, grew by 20% a year. It grew by 20% a year and its, it's um, chief executive, um, Clive Thompson, became known as Mr. 20% until one day it didn't grow by 20% because almost no companies grow year after year after year by 20%. Jack Welch had the same problem well, he retired, in fact, just in, in front of the problem. But, <laughs> yes. but at General Electric, there was growth of the order of 20% year after year until Jack Welch retired, and, and then it hit the skids and, um, uh, and, and didn't grow at all for some years. 20% a year, year after year after year, just does not happen. And share prices which reflect too much good news um, uh, tend to be overvalued. So, you know, what I always said is that I think the, I think the value has an advantage in the in the investment casino. And if you go to the table, which is marked value, the banker is erratically, inconsistently, but he's pushing 
chips in your direction. Not a huge number, but he's pushing them in your direction. If you, because there's bad expectations embedded in, in, the, in the companies at that table. If you go to the table marked growth, you're going to a table in which the banker is taking a disproportionate amount of the chips off the table because there's so much optimism built into the companies that you find at that table. Of course, you, you espouse this philosophy in, in the original book, which was published in 2007, and, and then value went on to do very badly. Yeah. And you've updated the book. And why did, you, why did you want to return to that? Why update the book rather than write a whole new book? Was it, oh, I couldn't face writing a whole new book. Oh, really? Well, not, not, not kind of regurgitating the same things that I had written about before. I write a new book about something quite different. Yeah. Not, not, and Harriman House said that they wanted to um, publish it. it. The first book had sold out. Um, and so we, we agreed that I'd write a sort of 50, 60 page afterward, which dealt with the things which had happened since 2007 mm. when the first book was published, but, a re, but alongside a reprint of, of the first book. Um, so it covers the things which seem to be sort of on track still, and the things which are, are not, which have not been on track. And there isn't too much that I regret having written in two thousand and seven. Um, I mean, the central sort of messages of the book um, I would hold to today, and, and, and perhaps that's sort of pertinent today because one of the most central themes of the book is have faith in equities. And we've had a twenty percent fall in the S and P. We've had a more than that fall in. In uh, in Nasdaq and and in some of the indices this year, so this you know this is a pertinent question again. Is it all over? And a lot of people are saying that the forty year move since I began work in nineteen seventy seven, forty years since um, I began investing in nineteen eighty two, um, is over. And it may be, but I just I just wouldn't bet on that. I would bet on equities over the long term to do what they have done in the past, which is to provide a sort of 5 or 6% real return. But in exchange for that very high return, you get some very big bumps. And this is a very big bump. Um, I don't see it. it doesn't feel that big to me. I mean, I know, there's well, a lot of, I know there's a lot of growth investors nursing a lot of pain with 70, 80% falls. But I mean, the pains from, from, the falls have been from ridiculous levels. Exactly, I mean, yeah. You know, $100 billion floats for no revenue companies. I mean, you know, oh, big deal. It's fallen by 80%. It's still $20 billion. still hasn't <laughs> coined a dollar of revenue. I don't really get what the problem, you know, don't get why people are surprised. Uh, well, I, would, I, agree, I agree with that. I think, you know, a lot of things went to stratospheric valuations, which were simply not justified. And some of them were in, particularly in the SPAC field where um, some of those SPAC companies have fallen by 90 or 95%. Yeah. So, uh, and the UK is not exactly front of the front of the um, uh, top of the league at the moment in uh, world reputation and performance and so on. But I was just sort of pleased to note that the one SPAC which came in London because London it's decided gone up, to, yeah. to compete for SPACs, the one SPAC in London is is actually up. Yeah, yeah. and I, I... and it's in an old fashioned business, whereas um, a lot of the, um, the the ones in the states have been in businesses with, as you say, no revenues in the foreseeable future. Or possibly ever. I mean, some of them, I suspect. In the second edition, you are suggesting that the 2020s will be the decade for active managers precisely because the 2010s were so cruel. Why did you frame it like this? I mean, do you think fashions and stock markets last like a 10-year cycle? I mean, are you one of these 
you know, Howard Marks goes on about mastering mm -hmm. the cycle. Is that, do you follow that sort of philosophy? Well, I don't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put it in any particular, I don't know how many years it is. Um, but yes, I absolutely do believe there are phases in markets. There are, there are cycles in markets and they have something to do with cycles in economies. They're more or less unstoppable because of human nature. Human nature um, jumps on bandwagons. And then when the Minsky moment comes, um, the Minsky view was that the more stability you get over a period of years, the greater the risk of instability because people get too comfortable. And that drives markets to very high valuations from which then they fall. So, so I do absolutely believe that markets are highly cyclical. And the reason I think that active managers in general are well-placed now is that index funds, the move into index funds, which has been absolutely enormous, um, has meant that uh, the, the largest companies, the FANGs especially, have come to be a quite disproportionate uh, part of the major indices. So I think the FANGs constitute something like close to 30% of, um, of the S&P. Well, that's not a natural position. It's higher than it's ever been, almost ever been in the past. And few actively managed portfolios would have anything like 30% in FANGs. There may be some, but there'd be very, very few. It would only be index funds who do. So there's been a kind of um, compounding effect that as index funds have grown, more and more money has gone into those few companies. And that equally works in reverse, that if you get a period in which, for one reason or another, active managers do well, those who have invested in index funds, I think, will suddenly have some regrets. And they will say, well, OK, we could have, we could have a third of the fund in index because it's cheap. But we really ought to be finding some of these managers who are outperforming over the last year or two. And then you get the compounding effect in the other direction, the unwinding effect of that concentration in yeah. fangs. So I think it could be a very good decade for, uh, for active managers and, and especially for value managers because there's been so much movement towards growth managers over the last 10 years. There are very few value managers, really true value managers left. Uh, and value is, value is um, interpreted differently. There's the old Ben Graham view of value, which was a sort of purer or deeper value than the more modern quality value uh, type of, of uh, investment, which I think Warren Buffett is responsible for, 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 for muddying, really, because people regard Buffett, who is a tremendous superhero and justifies canonization, mm. but they regard him as a value investor, and therefore they regard whatever he does as being a value investment. But investment in Coca-Cola, for example, is not a value investment. And so he, I think, has muddied the interpretation of value, which has meant during this really tough period for deep value, it's been easy for some investors to kind of fall off the edge and say, well, we're, we're still value investors, but we're buying rather different sorts of stocks with high quality. Uh, actually, they have left the field of deep value investment. Yes. That means it's been, uh, it's, it's an under, underused field. And if, if the trend turns, then there'll be a massive move back into that area of the market, which at the moment is ignored. Uh, and I, I mean, that's why, you know, our, the portfolios my, my colleagues run are on P's of 10 and, and less um, with good dividend yields. And these are essentially sound businesses. They're not looking at earnings years out. I think this is a moment when one wants to find investors who are basing their 
valuations, not on earnings, three or four years in the future, when there's too much which is uncertain, but on cash flow and earnings, which are pretty current. Uh, and it happens that because of what has happened to deep value, that's an area which is just stuffed full of really good opportunities. So I'm, although I think the world is in an awful mess, and, <laughs> and I think that um, uh, this gap between interest rates and inflation is a real problem, uh, and inflation itself is something which is very difficult to grapple with. I'm, I'm old enough to remember the, the, the 70s and to have been around during that time when you know wages were, were changing so frequently, prices were changing every day. Uh, and you need a different sort of mindset to cope with that, that problem, both as a company and as an investor. So I think the world is very difficult, but I'm very optimistic that there are a lot of companies which will provide good returns over the next five years or so. Yeah, I, I, I don't disagree with you. I mean, I think there, you know lots of people have viewed the fangs as being bulletproof, as you know, having quasi-monopolies. And I think there's an element of truth, you know, with all these yep. things, there's always, there has to be an element of Absolutely. truth behind it for people to, to believe in it. And I, I think there's massive difference between a Facebook and an alphabet. They might yeah. st both be exposed a downturn in advertising over the next two years. But I know that in 10 years time, I'm still going to be using Google for search. I can't conceive of that monopoly disappearing because you've just got too big an advantage. Whereas Facebook, well, I don't know when Facebook started. It came to the market in 2011. So it's probably five years old then. 20 years ago, there wasn't a Facebook. Yeah. And in 20 years time, there may not be one again. Yeah, I quite, so, I quite agree. Although, I, quite agree. I mean, I think there are two things. One is, one is that even the very best companies get uh, an excess of enthusiasm, so that they go to valuations which the slightest bit of not so good news um, leads to a very large fall in the share price. And it, it can still be, in fact, good news, but it's not good enough the news. So you suddenly have a quarter in which earnings growth was sort of five percent or ten percent or rather than the 20% that the market has come to expect. It's a problem. That's one thing that happened. And the other thing that, that has happened is exactly as you've said, there are some companies which have, as it appears, pretty much monopolies, but there are so many companies which are valued as though they are going to be the dominant uh, company in their, in their field in five, 10 years' time. And they can't all be the dominant company. No, of course. That's the, well, that's the same problem we had in the dot-com boom. Now, I wanted to talk to you about stepping out of the office because you wrote some fantastic stuff about going out and visiting companies and visiting overseas countries. So you suggested that there were two dangers of stepping out of the office. One is that CEOs can be charming and persuasive. And you said that travel narrows the mind. You cited a visit to Russia before its collapse in 1998 and when it reneged on its sovereign debt. How should investors, so professional investors, how should they maintain their equilibrium? When they do, because I, you do believe it is worthwhile. I do getting out. I do. I do. So, yeah. how, how yeah. should we? But I think you, you, I think they invest, they've got to keep in perspective the the extra bit of um, information that they've got from the visit. I mean, if you go on holiday to, well, if I go on holiday to Jordan, I come back thinking I really know a lot about Jordan. Um, but of course, I know not quite sweet FA, but I know very very little about Jordan compared with those who live there or have been going there for years and years. And it's very tempting as an investor to think when you visited the CEO on home ground and walked around a factory, that suddenly you know all about the company. Um, 
uh, and it's very tempting when you visit a country for the first time to think suddenly you understand the country. So that's why I use those those sort of exaggerated terms. And I, I mean, I talk about visiting Walmart, which is a wonderful company. I used to go when I was at um, Mercury. Uh, I used, I went, I think, three times to Walmart in probably three successive years, perhaps spaced over four years. And each time I went, I came back thinking it was worth a couple more on the the price earnings multiple than before I'd gone because the chief executive was so good at spinning the story. And in those days, one could get a one-on-one with uh, with the CFO and sit in his office, which was a sort of threadbare affair. And he'd <laughs> point to his battered old Ford in the car park. And you thought, this is, this is great. This is the cost-cutting ethos of Sam Walton. Uh, but it was probably more just that people in those sort of positions are very good at spinning the company's story. So I am wary of, uh, but as you say, I, we don't, I don't run away from chief executives. They add a bit of color to the story. I mean, I, in, the, in the update to the book, I talk about a recent big mistake, which was with Tesco, where um, when uh, Terry Leahy retired, the company was at the top of its game. And actually, I remember, I remember but I didn't remember soon enough what Simon Marks of Marks and Spencer said, uh, which is he worried about margins being too high because he said if margins are very high, either the quality is suffering um, or, the, or the service is suffering. And this happened at Tesco. Terry Lee, he was there for a good long time. So often when you have a chief executive very successful who's been there for a long time, towards the end, they are uh, slightly sort of struggling to hold on to the statistical record. And he passed on a legacy to his successor, Phil Clark, which was extremely difficult. And Phil Clark, uh, when things began to go wrong, he said, roughly speaking, don't worry, we can, we can sustain 5.2% trading margins. And in fact, all our sort of internal work cast doubt on that. But we were persuaded by the chief executive. We thought he'd been given a difficult job by his predecessor. And we, uh, we wanted to believe. We wanted to believe. And so often in investment, investment is like hoaxes. It's so often a case of people wanting to believe, of credulity, which is, again, something that's, that's always fascinated me. I love hoaxes. I've always been fascinated by <laughs> hoaxes because they're all to do with the psychology of, of markets and the psychology of, of crowds. And, you know, because he's, he's done something, I feel I should do the same. Um, anyway, Tesco was another case of being too too close to the chief executive. We, not that we knew him well, met him a few times, but we wanted to believe the chief executive. And I think the lesson is uh, you don't want to just accept what chief executives say. You want to watch what they do and come to your own objective conclusions about what they say. Tesco is a funny example because Lee was up to all sorts of accounting shenanigans before he stepped off the, the bus. And Phil Clark was a very genuine, very honest guy. I mean, I, I remember meeting him just coincidentally at a social event. And we were just talking about where we lived. And he knew my local branch of Tesco. And I thought, I, I mean, I don't know how many stores they've got, but 2,000? I mean, I was okay, it was a London store. But he knew intimately yeah. the, the, the nature of that business. And I, I was like, incredibly impressed by that. 
Of course, which well, goes to show you shouldn't be impressed, right? Yeah, I think that's right. I think you, I mean, of course, you can't help being impressed by people or not impressed by people. But you have to be very cautious about how much weight you give to that in a decision about investment. And one of the really, one of the, one of the real alarm signals, which we didn't pay enough attention to, and in fact, we didn't know about until until after um, Dave, um, I've forgotten his name, Dave Lewis came in. Sorry. Um, was there was a revelation during the sort of unraveling of the accounting scandal that in one year, uh, the product range had increased by 31%. The number of SKUs had increased by 31%. And the reason for that was that there was promotional uh, payments made by the suppliers, which inflated the revenues. I mean, you might have in one area a whole lot of promotional payments because it was sort of genuine new marketing policy. But to have that across the company to the extent of 31% shows a pretty dodgy policy. Absolutely. And, and, and that, was, I mean, that wasn't the only dodgy policy they were implementing. They were, they were doing all sorts, all sorts of things. I love the, in the book, you talk about, we were talking about Russia and your visit to Russia. And you'd, um, you, you did a, a little poem, which was a minute of a discussion about China, Russia, and Khodorkovsky, who was the Yukos man. Yeah. And um, was China finer? It appeared, we feared, when the dollars were counted, the odds had mounted, that the markets discounted the convincing prospect of the growth we expect. Was Russia lusher? It depended, we tended, on how much imputing to President Putin of a dubious motive to increase his vote if, as part of his prospectus, he was seen by electors to come out strong when things done were wrong. Too much faith in Khodorkovsky could, quite frankly, be sort of costly. Now, I thought this was brilliant, but what made? I mean, how long did it take you to write a minute like that? And I'd, had, I'd had lunch with uh, with with a friend. We talked about Russia. I sent it straight after the lunch, and it's not, so, you know it's not a really very good poem. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was very good fun. Uh, so was that was that uh, was that a, a bottle of claret over lunch? And, and I, I think it was a dry lunch. It was a dry lunch. <laughs> Quite, Quite remarkable. But have you always tried to bring that sort of sense of humor to the to the table when you've yes. been working with the team? Yes. And how how does one do that? Because it's quite difficult in an investing environment to inject humor sometimes. I I don't know. I think you I I think you can inject humor into every part of life. Um and yeah, if you can't find humor then it's a it's a duller sort of life. So so, do you, I mean, is this the sort of thing, ditty, that you would knock up quite regularly? No, I, I, I can't remember whether... I had a, I had a colleague, and I, I quote him, a great friend and colleague called Norman Backup, who used to write songs about investment. He was a brilliant songwriter. Oh, really? Um, two tunes which already existed, and one of his songs, when I was first at um, Marlboro's in the late 1970s, I worked in New York from 79 to 81, and uh, my job was to try to persuade pension funds to invest internationally. Uh, and he wrote this wonderful song, a part of which I can remember, which I will now sing to you. It was, it was to the tune of Thoroughly Modern Millie. And I don't think I really know the tune of Thoroughly <laughs> Modern Millie, but it went roughly like this. International diversification lowers your volatility, increases your internal rate of return, improves your liquidity, invest just 10% outside the U.S., and your returns will sure impress with their relative success, and so on. Um, anyway, so yeah, a bit of bit of that, a bit of badinage uh, is a good thing. So, um, 
I need to go on a poetry course, obviously. So look, you have been a global investor, and I, that's what I did as well. And one criticism often leveled at people in that role is you don't have enough time and expertise to really get to know all the stocks and economies. I mean, we both of us, I'm sure, are far more knowledgeable about the UK than about South Korea or Brazil, which is often where you end up investing. You explain in the original book an anecdote about the 1987 crash, about why distance is helpful. Mm -hmm. Can you just share that with the listeners? Sure. I was... Um... When the crash happened, I was the head of the US equity team at Mercury, and I was on holiday. I was in Spain when I got a call from my uncle. We've got a, we've got, um, uh, a house in Kent which has lots of trees around it, and most of them had fallen down, and, and also part of the roof had fallen in. Uh, oh, yeah. And so we cut short our holiday, came back. But I was still meant to have another week of holiday. So on the Monday after the, after the storm, which had taken place on Friday, um, I was walking amongst this terrible chaos of fallen trees uh, when I got a call. Uh, it can't have been quite like that because mobiles didn't really exist then. So I must have gone in and got the call from somebody who said the Dow Jones is down 500 points. And I, I remember thinking instantly, well, that really doesn't matter very much. These fallen trees are the sort of thing that matter. And, and also regarding it as a kind of non-event and an opportunity. And I did, I continued to think that for 24 hours. But after a day or so, I thought I'd better go back to work because I was the head of the US equity team and I, I felt I should be there. And as soon as I went back, having thought prices are 25% lower than they were, this is very attractive, I got caught up in the emotion that everybody else had. And in fact, um, I was part of, I wasn't head of it, but the head of the strategy committee at that time went to 40% cash in our global um, equity portfolios after the crash. And there was, there was almost no dissension from that. And of course, it was calamitously wrong. That was a real lesson. It was one of the big, big lessons of my career. And of course, you can play... The trouble with these lessons in investment is that next time, it's the reverse that you should have done. So next time, maybe one sh we should be going to 40% cash. But anyway, that lesson sort of plays very strong with me and has done for uh, for 40, well, 30, 33, 35 years. Because distance can be an advantage. Funnily enough. And, well, sorry, yes, distance is an advantage. And also, second thing, is that taking these big wholesale decisions about asset allocation has an, a great probability of being wrong. Because by the time you take them, you've got virtual unanimity, you've got a consensus. And if you've got a consensus, then people are already there in, in, in market terms. I'm a great devotee of a thing called the Investors Intelligence Survey of Advisory Sentiment in the States, yeah. which measures the bullishness or the bearishness of newsletters. And there's a tendency for them to be bullish because they're all in the business. And it's an inverse indicator. So yeah. when the overwhelming majority is bullish, it's a buy signal. When the overwhelming majority is bearish, it's a sell signal. And that's the sort of peculiarity and the attraction or the sort of fascination of markets. I was talking to somebody recording a, a podcast last week, funnily enough, and they were saying that they um, have colleagues in another firm where there are several PMs and they debate the ideas. But at the end of the day, they don't form a committee and, and vote. And you present your idea and you get a lot of pushback and everybody hates it. They think it's a rotten idea, but you go ahead and do it anyway. 
were, those were always the most successful investments. Yeah. And as I said, I, I don't know how you measure that, but ones where there is a lot of controversy and, and where there, there are lots of reasons not to invest. I don't know. I mean, it becomes such a difficult game, doesn't it? Because when we were talking earlier about value investing, this morning I was looking at a, a stock in an emerging market for a client. And um, this stock is, I mean, dirt cheap. It's a bit like Curry's. So we were at the London Value yep. Investor Conference. Yep. Nick Courage proposed Curry's. And I said, well, that is like one of the cheapest stocks I've ever seen. It's on 7% of sales. It's on 7% of sales for a good reason, because it's been over-earning the last couple of years in COVID. Everybody's bought a new laptop. We're going into a, an economic downturn, so nobody's going to buy a new laptop. Mm -hmm. There's going to be a mm -hmm. massive delta in the sales. And, of course, it's a question, hey, it'll probably survive and be the last man standing. This, this stock reminded me of Renault. And I actually, so I, I used the analogy of Renault because I remember Renault being on a negative enterprise value. Yeah. Yep. In 2011, 2012. And for a couple of years, the stake in Nissan was worth more than the business. I, I remember that. Yeah. If you'd bought Renault at a negative enterprise value, I looked at this morning, you would have lost money that's, over 10 that's years. Yeah. In spite of the stock market going up two and a half fold yeah. in that period. It's, it's, um, it, we did, by the way, we did buy Renault in around that time. And, and, we, and we did very well with it. But there are, kind of, there are no permanent truths in investment. And um, one of the things which dis persuaded us out of Renault, and this is pure sort of coincidence, we thought it in this way. Actually, I'm talking about a period before 2011, way back in, in the 2000s, because I, I mentioned this in the book published in 2007. One of the things which dis we'd made good money in Renault, one of the things which dissuaded us out of Renault was a concern about um, Carlos Ghosn. Um, well, I had no idea, of course, what was going to happen to Carlos mm. Ghosn subsequently. But uh, I say in the book in 2007 that we were concerned that about the premature beatification of chief executives yeah. because he was treated as somebody who, who could do no wrong. Um, and it was a great contrast at that time. So this would have been around 2005, probably, with, um, with Steve Ballmer at Microsoft, who was regarded by the market as somebody who could do no right. Yes. And uh, those were two little factors. They were obviously part of a much bigger consideration, but which made us sell Renault and we bought Microsoft at roughly the same time, or we had held it, I think, for, for some time before. So I think that, uh, again, is coming back to the business about falling in love with chief executives. If the market falls in love with the chief executive, beware. Funny, because um, Gorn was such a major proponent of electric vehicles, and Renault could have been Tesla. Absolutely. Which yes. is kind of a, a funny story. The other thing I loved in the book was the Rip Van Winkle investor. <laughs> tell, tell us about that. Well, um, I, yes, I, I, I invented this asset management company called Rip Van Winkle Asset Management, where the, the, the boss uh, invests and then he um, uh, falls asleep and he wakes up in 20, 25 years and sees how things have done. And uh, I use this apropos Russia. And I'll tell you about that. In, in about 1997, yeah, 1997, having made my first ever trip to Russia and decided that I knew all about it, <laughs> I said at a meeting, uh, I think it's safer to invest in Russia than in Coca-Cola. And that, as I write, is one of the silliest things I've ever said. Um, but by 2007, even though the Russian market went down 90% after I had said that remark, 
by 2007, it was up by about three times from, mm. from before it went down 90%. And it was up sort of almost infinite times from, of course, from the bottom. Um, whereas Coca-Cola had drifted sideways and down fairly consistently for several years from 1997, when it just about peaked, to 2007. And so the point of this was that if Rip Van Winkle woke up and he looked to see how these two things had, had gone, he would have said, well, Coca-Cola is definitely less safe than uh, <laughs> Russia because I've lost money in Coca-Cola and I've made a lot of money in, in Russia. Uh, and so it, it was the silliest thing I've ever said. And of course, recent events have kind of consolidated that, I mean, or confirmed yes. that it was a silly thing to say because a market like Russia is not like a company like Coca-Cola. Um, but the point of it is that volatility it was an exaggerated way of saying that I think investors pay too much attention to volatility. If they're truly long-term investors, uh, and that's a very big if, but if they are truly long-term investors, then they don't need to worry about fluctuations from year to year, month to month, quarter to quarter. And they should be prepared to take probably greater volatility than has become customary in the last 20 years. Uh, so, of course, it's, it's a, a very obvious philosophy, but it's actually just incredibly difficult to execute. But it is difficult to execute. And you, and you really have to have this seriously long-term view. You have to be prepared to look ahead 10 years. I mean, I think that the statistics, that the statistics on which the view that equities provide a real return of 5 or 6% are based only get comfortable when you look out at a 30-year horizon. Um, Andrew Smithers has just written about this. And for periods of 20 years, for example, you're not on safe ground. It's only when you get to about 30 years that you get on safe ground. And of course, we're looking at a relatively small set of 30 years. I mean, the, you know, you're... Yeah, I think, he, I, think he, I think the records now go back rather amazingly, but they go back to the early 1800s. I don't know what they had in... Yes, in, I, I, in I, I don't know if you've... Have you looked at the, um, what, uh, what stocks were there in the early 1800s? Yeah, which I mean... Gave I, that? It's a really difficult thing to research, actually. Yeah. And I have done have done a bit of work. Funnily enough, the Bank of England's got great content on its website, got a lot of Has historical it? content. And it's been fascinating um, talking to you. One of the things that I always like to ask people is what would they advise a young person entering the industry? And typically, what books would you recommend someone? Well, I think the I think Ben Graham is is sort of um uh, it's rather like what you take to, on Desert Island Disc. You, you're allowed to take the Bible and Shakespeare. Well, you've got to have Ben Graham. <laughs> um, and so it's in addition to Ben Graham. I think one of my favorite books about investment is a book about this man I mentioned earlier, Peter Cundall, who was a Canadian value investor, hugely successful in his career as a whole. Long, long periods when it went badly wrong. Patience, patience, patience was his mantra. And there's a book about him written by Christopher Risseau-Gill called uh, There's Always Something to Do. And I think that is, um, first of all, I think the title is very good because it's true in investment. There is always a corner of markets which has been neglected and is attractive even when a whole lot of other things look very overvalued. There's always something to do. And, and secondly, it is absolutely the life story and the philosophy of a very brave deep value investor, which he was. Oh, that's great. Well, it's a book I've not read. I'm familiar with, with him, so I'm looking forward to that. Thank you enormously, Richard, for coming on. I really enjoyed our conversation. Huge pleasure. Thank you very much. 
Well, I really enjoyed that discussion. It's so refreshing to talk about investing with someone who's such an independent thinker. I learned a lot. That 31% increase in SKUs at Tesco was something I didn't know in spite of studying the company and having a position in it. You're always learning in this game and I am incredibly fortunate to be able to use this podcast to advance my education. I love talking to experienced, wise investors like Richard who are full of common sense and good advice. Let me know if you have ideas for similar guests. Thank you for listening. And please don't forget to leave us a review or rating on Apple Podcasts and make sure you pick up a half-priced copy of the book at Harriman House with that code SBNE50.